Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. In this first episode of the 2021-22 season, we discuss the current strength of organized labor in the US. According to a recent Gallup poll, fully 65% of Americans say they support unions and believe they help workers. Despite this broad approval, a mere 6% of workers in the private sector and 10% of workers in the entire US workforce belong to unions. This low rate of unionization has sapped the power of organized labor, and it has wide ramifications for our political economy. Increasingly, even mainstream economists and commentators have come to see the diminished power of unions as a leading cause of stagnant wages and gaping income disparity. For this reason and many others, unionization rates really matter. Ruth Milkman and Stephanie Luce, my guests today, produce an annual State of the Unions report, which looks closely at unionization trends. I'm fortunate to count on both Ruth and Stephanie as New Labor Forum consulting editors. They're also faculty members at the CUNY School of Labor and Urban Studies. Welcome to both of you, and thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Your report examines the 2020 and to 2021. But let's start by looking back roughly half a century when unionization rates or union density, as we call it, was more than three times higher than it is today. What were the factors that contributed to organized labor's strength and what caused the steady decrease in union density that we've seen, especially since the 1980s? Oh boy, that's a big topic. Let me start with one fun fact, which is that in the period you're talking about, the mid-1950s is the all-time peak in union density in the United States. And while today, New York's union density is roughly double that of the nation, back then it was about the same, it was average. So that's one thing. And so what has happened in the interim, I'm sure Stephanie has plenty to say about this. I'll just start by saying, The biggest single factor is employer opposition to unionism accelerating, especially after 1980, but it starts before that, really. There are other factors too, but that's the single most important cause of the decline. Stephanie, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I think there's, you know, we can look at a lot of external factors. I think I agree with Ruth about employers organizing 
to crush unions and keep them out. You know, people point to globalization, they point to, you know, trade agreements, they point to weak labor law, anti-union education in the schools, and also some factors internal to unions too, unions that didn't keep up with organizing, unions that had anti-immigrant stances and so forth. I'm, I mean, all of these things play some factor, but I think I would go with Ruth's same answer, which is if you had to pick one, it would be a political organization of the employers and the chambers of commerce to go after unions. Your report notes that back in the golden age, which we've been briefly talking about, New York's unionization rate was only about 2% less than the national average, whereas today it's about double. Can you explain that? Well, it's interesting. I mean, part of it is the strength of public sector unionism, which is you know, extremely high in New York, but actually it's true nationally too. So the, the double density phenomenon is true in both public and private sector unionism. So it can't just be that. Our colleague, Josh Freeman has written about the, his, the labor history of New York and argues that New York, unlike the rest of the United States in the 1930s and 40s, really successfully established a kind of social democratic political regime. And I think there's something to that, and that may be part of it. In other words, the the factor, the kind of neoliberal impulses that transformed the rest of the country were a bit more restrained here. I mean, it's hard to say that in some ways because we all know what happened after 1975 and so on, but at least on the labor front, it seemed like the unions were able to hang on more. And maybe it's also that the economy wasn't as radically transformed. Manufacturing did disappear, but in New York, a lot of other industries were organized too. And then, of course, in the 70s, New York led the nation in healthcare worker organizing. That may have been a factor as well. That later spread elsewhere, but it began here. I don't know. I think there are probably a lot of different things that contributed to it, but I don't think there's an obvious answer, actually. There's these quirky outcomes in New York, like the hotels, which is like most other cities are barely unionized at all in the hotels, let alone New York is not only highly high density, but extremely good wages and working conditions, or at least that's been the case up through the pandemic. So I think it's there's probably an interesting story to tell that goes sector by sector. And some of the early experiments in service sector organizing, I think it were in New York City, and that created maybe a culture of experimentation and something something worked. Yeah, I think, you know, also maybe healthcare, the healthcare industry in New York, which is so enormous, is so, it's also the the largest public healthcare system in the United States. So that perhaps that contributes to it as well as the aggressive organizing of 1199 in private healthcare. Be interesting to take a look at it kind of industry by industry. One other industry where this is true is construction. So I've done some research on construction on the West Coast where deunionization just kind of skyrocketed in the, especially in the 1980s, but starting even before that, it's been eroded some in New York, but nothing like the rest of the country. So that's another factor. But the question is why? Yeah. And in the case of construction, it may be with the, you know, the extremely high cost of construction means that labor is less of a consideration for the developers than it is elsewhere where labor is a bigger percentage of their costs. I don't know. Hmm. But but that is another industry that's different. It stands apart from the rest of the country. Looking at the national as well as the New York picture, public sector is tremendously important. And it's the public sector organizing, if I'm if I'm not mistaken, took off kind of as private sector union and 
density was declining. And I think it's now nationally like six times higher or so than private sector density. That's a problem, isn't it? It's the same thing we talked about before. There isn't nearly as much employer opposition in the public sector. It's not zero, but compared to profit-making enterprises, government employers tend to be more more mild in their opposition to unionism, let's just say. So that's part of the reason it's so much higher. But when there's that huge a gap between private and public sector unionization rates, it means like in the United States as a whole, only 6% of private sector workers are union members. In New York, it's double that, but that's still only 12% or whatever. That may not right. be the right number. Yeah. 13, actually, yeah. in our most recent count for the city and, and actually for the state as well. Okay, but that means almost, even in New York, almost 90% of private sector workers are not unionized. So they read the newspaper or they hear something on TV about you know, how the state is going bankrupt because they have to pay pensions for city workers or something. And, you know, they're not very sympathetic because their pension long ago evaporated. They don't have a union. They don't have any of those benefits. And back in the days when lots of private sector workers were unionized, it was different. You thought you understood the attacks on public sector workers as something that, you know, was potentially an attack on you too or whatever. Now it feels like they're a completely separate species. So I think politically, it's very treacherous territory. Interestingly, even after the passage in 2018 of the Janus decision, which prohibits public sector unions from automatic dues deductions or agency fees, we all thought that public sector unionization rates would decline even dramatically. And that turns out not to be the case, according to your report. Could you talk a little about that? Yeah, I think we saw, first of all, a couple of the public sector unions really saw this coming and they made an effort to really plan ahead and to organize before the case came through. So calling up their members, engaging in basically an internal organizing campaign, explaining what was possibly coming down the road and why it was worth being part of a union. I think, you know, what we saw in Wisconsin that passed a much more rigorous anti-union you know, legal changes for public sector unions, we saw that it did in fact have a really severe negative effect on some of the unions that hadn't been prepared. But some of the unions like teachers in Milwaukee and so forth have maintained their membership because they kind of reoriented in a way to, to, to highlighting the benefits of being a union member that were, went beyond just, you know, the specifically about a wage increase. So there was also a social justice mission to being part of the union. There was just the element of being part of a collective voice. And I think that we saw a couple of the unions, big public sector unions in in New York kind of take that approach as well. And to, to really highlighting that we're all part of the union as a collective voice to raise standards for workers and we don't, we don't want this to be just a transactional relationship where you pay dues to get a certain wage increase. I think that had an impact. Given the fact that your report is looking at 2020 to 2021, it's a virtual study of the impact of COVID on employment rates and density rates. And you, you note a couple things that I found really interesting. Nationally, it's been a she session, in other words, an economic disaster that's particularly hit female workers. But you note that in New York State, that wasn't the case. Could t- would you talk a little bit about that? Well, it's not so much in New York State. It's New York City. Unionized. Mm-hmm. New York, well, we, it, 
the data are for the New York City metro area, which is, you know, New York City plus the suburbs. Right. But it might not be true in general of workers in that region. It's true for unionized workers. That's what we pointed out, which we, I at least didn't particularly expect. I mean, it's sort of, you can make sense of it once you see the data, but unionized women, which by the way, mostly means public sector workers. So that's part of it. were much less likely to lose their jobs than unionized men actually, which mostly means private sector, especially the building trades, those kinds of jobs. So it's really an artifact of what happened in the labor market, right? It's not, and that's true generally, like when in the 2008 crash, in that one, men were more affected than women, regardless of union status. And it wasn't because they were men. It was because of the jobs that they were in. In that case, it was also construction that collapsed, as we all remember, and to what little manufacturing there is in in the metro area, or nationally, it was true too. Those are the jobs that went. And white collar service sector kind of jobs, which are more heavily female employing and the public sector were not affected as much. So therefore, you know, men were hit harder. This time too, it's for a slightly different set of dynamics. But what you see nationally, in, and which again is mostly non-union workers, is the collapse of industries like the she session term comes from the fact that things like hospitality, restaurant work were decimated this time. And those are heavily female employing, right? Right. So it's it, it's just a it's not really a gender story. I mean, it is in the results, but it's more to do with given that jobs are so highly segregated by gender and industries as well, that wherever the cataclysm hits, if it's a female employing primarily sector, then women are going to be affected. And obviously the opposite if it's a male employing sector. So this time, the way it sort of shook out in, New, in the New York area, schools mostly stayed open. Half of those workers the women were employed in education in one way or another, not necessarily teachers, but some kind of school employee. So, you know, that right there explains a lot of it. It seems to me, I I noticed that male union workers in New York City had a greater rate of job loss than male non-union workers. Again, a story of industry, is it? Yeah, I mean, that was a surprise to us too. But, I, you know, when we looked at it, it was uh, pretty heavily in construction and transit. And those just seemed to be sectors that were really hit hard in that, you know, for six to eight months of the pandemic. So that's our understanding of really what was happening there. And we were looking through the end of 2020. Next year's report will tell us to what extent those jobs have bounced back. But that, you know, and, and, and basically what we found is, Everything was worse in New York. The pandemic's effects was just were just much more severe in terms of employment loss. So that that's that was a big hit in those early months. And again, because of because of industry, the yeah. industries that we have that predominate the metropolitan scene. Yeah. I like the entertainment, you know, theater, entertainment, those just completely closed down, right? Anything tourist oriented. So some of that is beginning to reopen now, but in 2020, for the most of the year, there was nothing. Something that I think I found a little bit of a head scratcher was trying to explain why union membership among women protected them, those who have children under age 18, they, they didn't leave the labor force at as high a rate. How, did, how, how do you think that played out again? Is it industry or is, does it have something to do with what the unions provided? 
I think it's industry. In other words, so suppose you work for the schools and you're teaching on Zoom or you're doing some other ancillary thing on Zoom. You might have kids at home who can't go to school, but you don't have to lose your job. I mean, it's not easy to take care of kids and mm-hmm. work on you know, your screen at the same time, but it's easier than if you have a job in a grocery store and you don't have any childcare. Right. So, you know, you don't really know. But then, and of course, there's health, there's healthcare and women are heavy, heavily present, present in that industry. And that's an, that's one where they've got to be there. That's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's probably not what explains this, because, you know, if for women in those jobs who, who lost their coverage for their kids in terms of schools and childcare arrangements collapsing, they would have either had to find somebody to take care of their kids and be able to go to work or they would leave. So we know that that happened a lot in other sectors. But again, I think education accounted for 51% of all those unionized women with children in 2019. So that's half the story anyway. It's just, it means that that huge chunk of the population of women workers with kids at home under 18, that was the, that's the category we looked at, are employed in education, most of it public, and that meant they were working remotely. So we know more generally, this is not about the union part, but we know more generally nationally, people who could work at home were much less likely to lose their jobs than those who, you know, had a physical face-to-face form of employment. And so in the New York City area, in education, there was none of that, basically. And another big chunk, by the way, were public workers who similarly I mean, we don't know exactly what their jobs were, but many of them presumably were white collar people who could, again, work remotely without necessarily having to quit their job, even if they did have children around. I wonder if there are other, you know, kind of major lessons that you took from this study that that, uh, you you would like to point out. Well, I think the first the first thing to say is that I, our conclusions on this, I would say, are not that solid because really we, we raised almost as many questions as we answered. And I think for me, that just suggests that this past year has been a complete tumult within the labor market. There's a lot of change, a lot of restructuring. And we're, I think, you know, labor economists and labor scholars are still trying to figure out what exactly happened and what is still going on. So for me, I think our report you know, the, the data raises questions to say this, we need further study. My initial reaction is, though, still that having a union does mean that you have more protection. So even in the midst of a, of a pandemic that hits really hard, you're going to see less job loss than if you don't have a union. That's because sometimes it's the sector, you know, it's the public sector, which has more job protections. And also some of those jobs continue to go like education and healthcare, but also because unions tend to introduce language and mechanisms to negotiate over layoffs and, and job loss. So whereas in the private, whereas in a non-union workplace, the employer can just say the pandemic has hit, you're all fired, you're gone. Um, that's not true so much in the unionized workplace where they will negotiate the terms of reduced hours or, you know, a, a different kind of job sharing. Those are, those are more, they have more options on the table in terms of how to handle a recession. I noticed also in your report, you do a very useful to me, very helpful look at industry groups nationally and New York State, New York City. I see how big retail and wholesale is within our economy. 
and how very minimally organized it is everywhere. So I wondered if you wanted to riff a little bit, looking forward, prognosticating, what do you think needs to be done? Of course, we've recently come out of this losing campaign at Bessemer for among Amazon workers, but that looks like the struggle will continue. Any private sector employer worth her salt or his salt more often, faced with any kind of unionization drive, fight it tooth and nail. That's just kind of reflexive. It's just, you know, that's the American way nowadays. It wasn't always so. But in this time in history, that's how it is. So in sectors where there's a lot of turnover of firms, like say restaurants, which were never that highly organized to begin with, but they were more organized in the past than they are now. That's how it is. So There are areas where unionization is happening, but they aren't making much of a dent in the overall numbers that we report on. So for example, you probably have read, whoever's listening to this, online journalists are organizing like crazy, but you know, it's a hundred people here, 50 there. It doesn't add up to much. So unless that continues on a much bigger scale, it's not going to make a dent in the numbers. Yeah, it's a challenge. And short of, you know, the passage of the PRO Act or some other major shift in the overall landscape, it's hard to imagine that turning around. But right. um, so the protect to, the right to organize, which doesn't look likely to pass in the current Congress, right? It doesn't look um, like long as there's a filibuster right. um, operating in the Senate. Yeah. Of course, there's a, been a change in the labor board, which makes some difference what what can be done about the in about independent contractors classification of workers maybe of of some real help but and the other thing like i think it's really hard to predict this kind of stuff i've kind of learned that the hard the hard way but mm-hmm. by making predictions that turned out to be completely wrong but in i just have this memory of reading a speech that the president of the american economics association gave in the early 30s saying that the labor movement was finished and dead and buried and then came the CIO. You know, you, you don't know what's going right. to happen in the future. And I'm not saying that that means it's going to happen again. I don't have any way of knowing that, but it could. And we probably won't be very good at predicting that, what form it would take, when it would happen, et cetera. So is your sense that unions are dedicating a smaller portion of their resources, financial resources, to organizing than they once were, say, in the 90s? Of course, Richard Trumpka recently died, president of the AFL-CIO, and I'm sure it'll give a cause for assessing what has happened over the past number of years. Part, the AFL-CIO is, of course, a federation, and unions themselves need to make the decision to contribute major resources to organizing. But I wonder what you know about the union commitment to organizing. You know, I think for some of them, they feel like they're throwing good money after bad. It's like the obstacles are so huge. So even unions that in the 90s were much more active have pulled back somewhat. Not everybody has. You know, I don't I haven't seen any numbers on that, like how much money is being spent at the moment. And of course, some of the unions that felt most strongly on this issue in the 90s that left the AFL-CIO are still not part of it. So the Trumpka thing is sort of a separate issue. But they're not stupid. They're not going to invest in a, a campaign that is sure to lose, although some people did predict the Amazon outcome. That was maybe an exception. I don't know. The thing that has changed, I think, especially among younger workers, is there is more of an appetite, it seems like, 
I don't know, I notice it, especially among college educated young people. That's who those journalists are. College adjuncts are organizing like crazy. Among the kind of college educated woke crowd, unions are cool again. You know, it's like a whole new, so that again, it isn't adding up to a whole lot, but even those red state teacher strikes were a couple years ago, those were a manifestation of that new interest among a new generation in organizing. And you know, that is the future. So maybe they'll find a way to turn it around. I'm with Ruth. I don't know the actual numbers, the, the, the share that's being spent on organizing, but we, we can point to some high profile, expensive campaigns such as Fight for 15 or organizing at Walmart, where a lot of money was spent and it didn't result in unionization. It had other positive spin off spin uh, effects, I think. But I think what we've learned in the last couple of decades is that new organizing isn't just a function of money. It's, it's something else. And we haven't cracked that code yet. And I think the, the examples of some of the places where unionization is, you know, seems to be taking off shows that it's not just about money. There's something else going on. Well, I want to thank you both for joining me for this important discussion and for the real contribution your report makes to understanding the current state of unionism and what, are, what the questions are that remain in front of us. To download the report for free, go to cuny.slu.edu State of the Unions Report. Engagement with issues like these forms the basis of the classroom experience at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. And to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu. Thank you.